We are now September the 13th, 2015, lecture discussion number 211, 211 on the Book of Romans. I repeat that uh, just so people can keep up because we intentionally try to outmaneuver you. But anyway, 211 on the Book of Romans and parts to be determined. Welcome back. Uh, I, we took last week off. As you can see, Kurt from Arizona came to visit. He wrote it on the, he came up here. We weren't here. He put it on the back. I'll read it to you. He said, uh, uh, Kurt from Arizona was here, uh, the 6th of September 2015. No buffet for me. And a, and a frowny face there. So, uh, sorry, Kurt, that we missed you. Um, well, not really. We, we all went to the fair. No, we didn't. We worked on our stairs and our our building since it was going to rain all of September and August. But I just wanted to say hi to him. Anyway, again, welcome back. Since uh, we we last assembled, which was August the 30th, we've witnessed the United States Senate do exactly what we knew the United States Senate would do. And that is they have voted against Israel. We have seen the Russian military move into Syria and continue to move. We'll keep an eye out to how much Russian force is now going to be inside of Syria. Uh, the Iranian religious and governmental authority has come out and declared in the last time since we've been here last that Israel will be extinguished in less than 25 years. And Iran has now mobilized ground forces into Syria as well as Russians, so the two are working in concert. A result of that is this swarm of refugees um, into Europe. So where are we now? Clearly things in the Middle East are much worse than they were two weeks ago when we were last here. Uh, chaos. This is going to be chaotic, if not complete collapse, if it continues. The Middle East cannot sustain this increasing pressure much longer. So keep uh, the wise will watch, right? Total war is coming. It's inevitable. The Middle East will explode. Some have asked me, how can you know that? Why are you so certain? Uh, well, actually, frankly, it's not all that tough to do. I've read the book. Simple as that. I noted the designs. I studied the charts. I plotted out the graphs. Uh, the author who wrote the book laid it all out. It's the sign of the wife of Jehovah. Our responsibility as believers is to obediently examine and canvas and meditate over his book, his words. That's what we're supposed to do, to know his book, to know him. Some things are definitive. Some things are obvious, such as this vote in the U.S. Senate. Fifty-eight senators voted for Israel. Forty-two senators voted against Israel. The vote against Israel sustains a presidential veto if one was necessary. Or it provides a veto-proof, I'm sorry, a, a filibuster-proof uh, block. They put the vote in another light. Fifty-eight senators chose to bless the nation of Israel. Forty-two senators, U.S. senators, chose to curse Israel. It is no more difficult than that. Bless or curse. Choice. How will you choose if you're a senator? How will one choose? Who will side with Israel? Who will side with those who are determined to kill all the Jews in Israel, especially the Israeli Jews? Who will vote for those who are determined to kill Israeli Jews? Well, now we know. 
We know who is who. They wrote their names down. It's astonishing, really. It actually is. You have got to know, as one of those 42, that you will stand in front of God himself, who is what? An Israeli Jew. He has come, he has added humanity, and the humanity that he added to himself is Israeli Jew. You've got to know that. In fact, there are, of those 42, quite a few of those claim Jewish heritage. Fascinating. How do you do this? What mindset is this? We know who they are. They have plainly written their names. It's unhidden. They've revealed themselves. And it's a solemn day for those, all of those who signed their names. Which column would your name be found? The list which curses Israel um, always carries an ominous cloud, a dire warning. It's the warning of Genesis 2-3. God says he does not stutter. There's no disclaimer. There's no caveat. He makes it as clear as he possibly can. I will bless those who bless you. Talking about the descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. That's a big problem as God defines curse. When God curses, that brings eternal implications. The 42 have willfully signed and placed themselves on the path to ruin. Destruction. Who does that? Why not abstain? Why not go to the bathroom? I mean, why would you sign that? It's astonishing to me. For what? For who? For your party, your president? You're going to, you're going to put yourself into destruction for what? How do you, how do you wrap your head? Yeah, Bill's back there giving me the money sign. But you've got to know. Wait a minute. There are some lines that you, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. It cannot be any more definitive. As you might remember, a few weeks back, I was unequivocal. I stated without any room to uh, negotiate or maneuver that the United States Senate would vote to enable Iran to kill the people of Israel. I said, that is what the United States Senate will do. There is no doubt in my mind they will do it. Never a doubt. Again, this is the sign of the wife of Israel. That's how I know. I've read the sign of the wife of Israel. I know what will happen. I will know one of the elements of the sign of Israel. Israel will be isolated. They'll be surrounded. They will be alone. Can't be, Psalm 22. Can't be any more clear. The nations are going to gather to kill the wife of Jehovah. When Christ brings the temple prostitute out, and the Pharisees, he doesn't bring her out. When the Pharisees bring the temple prostitute out before Christ and demand that she be stoned for adultery, uh, that's when he writes in the, in the sand. You see the picture forming. I have the Pharisees surrounding a woman that they know has committed adultery. How did they know it? Because they are the ones that hired her to commit adultery. Now they're bringing her to be killed. You see the surrounding of the woman and Christ intervening on her behalf. Israel is the wife of Jehovah. Indisputable fact that the nations are going to gather to kill her. But it becomes important. Thus it becomes important to those who read his book, the scriptures, the Bible, to know why. Why is Israel so hated? Why? 
I used to have a banjo teacher, guitar teacher, that would tell me, let's trade Florida for Israel and just get rid of this. We'll give them Florida. That should solve all the problems. No, they will still hunt the Jews down to kill them. Same for the Christians. That's a tribulational event. Except not for the ones that are over there in, in, in the proximity of ISIS. They're going to hunt down and kill the Jews and the Christians. Why? Why Israel? Why is Israel so hated by the world? What is the origin of this hate? What is the motivation of it? As you know, the very presence, the existence of the nation of Israel, just the existence of the nation of Israel, the fact that Israel, the, the fig tree has been reborn, though it still only has leaves. It's not yet the season for figs. It's not going to have fruit yet. When does it have fruit, by the way? I'll give you a little clue there, I hope. I'm, I'm going to tell you it's going to have 144,000 figs at some point. Anyway, just the very existence, the fact that the nation of Israel exists, that's incontrovertible proof that Jesus Christ is God. I know I made a leap there for you, but you'll be able to follow and figure out why that leap is so obvious. That is something that we here at Cliffside endeavor to illuminate every Sunday. Jesus Christ is God. The fact that Israel exists proves that Jesus Christ is God. Because Israel as a nation is a type of Christ. Christ goes into the wilderness. Israel goes in the wilderness. Israel is called the firstborn. Christ is the first fruit, the firstborn. There's this tremendous symbolism of the nation of Israel as a symbol as a type of Christ. The fact that it exists. Israel went away and it has returned. Christ went away. He will return. There's tremendous uh, connection between the nation and, uh, and Christ himself. The world loathes, hates the truth of Jesus Christ. Why do they hate Jesus Christ? They hate Jesus Christ because he saves. He saves the lost. Let me repeat it. They hate him because he saves people. That's why. Well, why would they hate somebody that saves people? That's a very good question. They hate him because he gives life to the dead and the dying. So again, we must know as a church, as individuals, as certainly Christians, why mankind hates the only one who can save them. It seems to be an inexplicable... I was listening to a radio commentator just constantly say, "It's how can we explain what's going on in this country? How do we explain this? How do we explain 42 U.S. senators voting this way? It can't be explained. Well, it's not, uh, it's not a, something that it is explained in the natural sense. It is a supernatural event. You must understand the supernatural component of it in order to explain it. Again, we have to know why mankind hates the one who gives life. That doesn't seem like a natural thing to do. If I'm drowning and somebody is swimming out to me, uh, I think I would be happy about that. But you know what drowning people do, right? First thing they do is try to drown the one that is saving them. 
as, a, as somebody that is skilled in saving people in water situations that are drowning, the first thing you do is what Robin does. You hit them with your left hand, try to knock them out. That's, only, that's a joke only for cliffside people if you're on the Internet. Then once you've got them uh, incapacitated, then you can draw them to safety, right? That's just the way it is. People uh, will every much uh, try to take out the one who's coming to save them. But this is a little different. This They hate the one that comes to give them life. It is a twisted logic, and it's illustrated in the parable of the vineyard, Mark 12, as you know, what we've been studying. So uh, very few people understand this particular aspect of uh, how the world, how mankind functions towards the one that can save them, the one that has created them. Uh, There's not much comprehension for this uh, issue, by the way. I'm very pleased that that is not the case here. Okay, but I've veered off somewhat from my agenda today, though I'm going to return to it. I'm giving you the subject of today's lecture. Why does the world hate the one that gives them life? You think they would be grateful. We know that Russia is going to lead the Ezekiel 38 Confederacy that eventually attacks Israel. And we know that Russia and Persia, or Russia and Iran, uh, they, they are a prominent allied force in Ezekiel 38. And I have said many times, I think Ezekiel 38 is a pre-tribulational event. It is not part of the tribulational period. It is before the the tribulation. And Russia and Iran are now, as I'm speaking, rushing their troops to fortify Bashar Assad in Syria. Why? Why does Russia seek to control Syria? Why does Russia want Assad to be the Syrian president? What is it to, to them? Why is Iran, Russia, rushing, sorry, to get into Syria to help the Russians. Who's fighting Assad? Let's ask the question another way. Russia has a naval fleet on the Syrian coast. Did you know that? They have a naval base there. Why is that so important to Russia? Why would Russia have a naval base on the Syrian coast? Remember, don't you, you should know, it only happened recently, Russia invaded Ukraine and seized the Crimean Peninsula, enabling them to secure a Black Sea access. So now they have a naval fleet in the Crimean Peninsula, in the Black Sea. Now they have one on the Mediterranean Sea with Syria. How do the Crimean invasions and the Syrian mobilization fit together? Because they do fit together. Why are the Iranians also so invested in Syria? What is it about Syria that they want? That they're willing to deploy troops? So keep all of that to the front of your mind. That Iran currently uh, is doing this. Now, Iran, as you know, controls right now. They control Tehran. They control Baghdad. They control Damascus and Beirut. They have partial control of Yemen. And obviously the Russian-Iranian, let me just give you a brief map. I'm not good at maps. But let's give you Iran, okay, and then Iraq. And then, uh, you know, over here we have uh, have, uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, right? Right now, now I have Syria. 
Uh, I have Jordan. I have Lebanon. Turkey's here. Here's the Mediterranean Sea right there. Here's Israel. Egypt. Saudi Arabia. Beautiful. Isn't that beautiful? Okay. Right now, look at what the Iranians can do. They control Tehran. They control all of Iraq. Okay? They, they, uh, they have Damascus. They have Beirut. They have Baghdad. Russia is now right. Russia is up here on the Crimean, and they, they. Sorry, I got Lebanon too high because this goes all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, Syria. So look at what they're going to control. Tehran is going to sweep like this. Does it remind you of anything? They have Yemen right now, Oman. Here's Kuwait right in here. Here's the United Arab Emirates right there. They're going to they're gonna do all of this. Saudi Arabia is going to be sitting right here, completely cut off from Pakistan. I wouldn't be surprised if Iran and Russia, but the United States is in Afghanistan right now, and that's, that's a deterrent. If Russia and Iran sweep all the way to the Mediterranean Sea from Pakistan and Afghanistan, if they control all the territory to the Mediterranean Sea, then they, the rest will fall. Oman will fall. The UAE will fall. Kuwait will fall. Qatar will fall. Or Qatar. Maybe Jordan. Certainly Jordan. The Middle East now is controlled by the Shiites because Iran is Shiite. Syria has a Shiite leader in Assad. It's, this is the Sunni-Shiite fight again, everywhere. ISIS is Sunni, Saudi Arabia Sunni, the rebels uh, in uh, Syria Sunni. The Kurds are mixed up in here, and the Kurds are trying to, to, to stake out this area here, parts of Turkey and northern Baghdad, where Nineveh, or n- northern Iraq, where Nineveh is. But the, if if this happens, then Shiite control with Russia. Uh, is dominating the Middle East. It's a Persian Empire again, and that's what the Shia, that's what Iran wants. They want that control. What does Russia want? Ezekiel 38 says and this is always fascinating. That um, I've, I've speculated forever, and they call it uh, the Bible says that the Russians are coming for spoil, and everyone has always speculated that. That's what they're coming for. They're coming for the oil. The Russians would then have control of all of that oil. Who would be in desperate trouble if that happens? I mentioned this before. Two countries, China, Japan. They would control the the port of Aden. They would control the Arabian Sea. They would control the Red Sea. They would choke off Saudi Arabia's distribution of oil. There's no way anybody buys any oil unless Russia says so. The United States would survive because we have reserves. Russia would be rich in oil and therefore the dominant world power. And Europe is already awash with refugees. But just imagine they would just send all of the Sunni refugees 
into Europe. And that all that remains to be taken out is real. Why would the Russians want Israel taken out? I'll explain that in a minute. But Israel would be next. But as atheists and Islam are predisposed to neglect, the Lord God of creation is the God of Israel. Oops. There's a small detail we hadn't really accounted for. They don't think so, by the way, but they will learn that. And God, the God of Israel intervenes before they can invade Israel. He intervenes. Uh, that's Ezekiel 38, 18 through 23. And he destroys the Persian uh, uh, Russian forces as well as the Turkish forces and all the others that are part of the uh, Turkey, Armenia, as you heard me explain that before, I think. I hope you do. He, God destroys them and the plans of Russia and Persia are ended, absolutely ended. And now to be precise, the Russian-led invasion of Ezekiel 38 is distinct from the Antichrist campaign of Armageddon to exterminate the Jews. Those are not the same event. They are completely different. You see, Russia is destroyed by what can be attributed as, uh, what can be attributed as natural events. Uh, earthquakes. Pestilence. This army that, that comes for Israel has, is, is overcome by earthquakes and disease. Disease hits them. Showers of rocks. God throws rocks at them. And as you know, God is really accurate with his rocks. He hits things very well. He hits them with fire and rocks. Soldiers start turning upon one another. I.e., the Russian troops start attacking the Turkish troops. And the Turkish troops start fighting with the Iranians. And the Iranians start shooting at the Russians. And this, this entire army cannibalizes itself. Whereas at Armageddon... The Antichrist has complete and total control. Everyone is on the same page. They come for the Jews in Jerusalem and in Basra. And Jesus Christ himself, with every eye seeing him, there's nothing natural about it at all. This is all supernatural at the battle of Armageddon against the Antichrist. Jesus Christ personally himself slays those assembled against him in Israel. He fights them alone. So there are two, uh, anyway, there are great differences in the two wars. Uh, uh, you need to know your Magog Gogs, by the way. There's two Magog Gogs. This is, a, Ezekiel 38 is a Magog Gog. There's also a post-millennial Magog Gog. So know that and also make sure you do not conflate or, or commingle Magog Gog with the Battle of Armageddon or the Campaign of Armageddon. <coughs> Excuse me. As of now, Russia sees Israel as a military impediment to untold spoil and therefore untold power. If they get the Middle East, they control the world and they know it. The Russian Empire, the Russian Bear, the USSR, they are now the dominant power in the world and it isn't even close. They have rendered the Chinese impotent. Already the Chinese economy is beginning to teeter. If the Russians are able to stop their oil supply, their energy sources, then they crush them. Don't think they don't know it. Both sides know it. 
the Chinese do not have an ally with the Persians. The Persians, the Iranians, are on the side of the Russians. By the way, Russia has never been uh, judged by God for what they did in World War II. Nor has yet the Germans. They've taken a beating, but not what God intends for them. He's going to burn them to the ground. He doesn't forget. He will He will have his vengeance on those nations. The Russians, though, they're they're coming for Israel because of that wealth and power, that domination of the world, and that allows the Russians to stay in the Middle East. You see, if I take out Israel, what will even Saudi Arabia will be thrilled with the Russians if the Russians take out Israel? They so hate the Jews. So all the Arab countries will allow Russia to be dominant because Russia has eliminated Israel. The, the Islams will go ahead and put themselves into slavery in order to kill the Jews. That irrational hatred is that strong. And keep in mind, the Antichrist, he doesn't care about Anybody. He only wants to kill the Jews of Israel, the Jews all over the world, and Christian. He has no need of wealth. He already has all the power at that time, except for the power that God has, which is infinitely larger. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry. Okay. Where did we leave off? All of that, by the way, leads all, now takes us to our new discussion. Because I'm trying to develop this hatred for the one that is coming to save you. Why would anybody hate the Savior? doesn't make sense. But it is exactly the condition of the world. So that's kind of where we left off uh, August the 30th. When we were discussing Lazarus and the Pharisees. Which is the same subject as what I just did. Okay? Try to stay with me. Everybody stay on the bus. Jesus God... Jesus God, Jesus Christ, has gone around healing lepers. And as you know, lepers very rarely in those days had any fingers, ears, noses. He had to grow new eyes for them. They're blind. Put noses on them. Put ears on them. Extend their fingers. Rebuild them. That's what he had to do. Remember the parable of, of how many lepers came back to him and said, thank you for... Growing one guy comes back, the Samaritan. The others take off. Why wouldn't you come back to the guy that put your fingers back on and put your ears and your eyes back together? Restored you to what? How good a job did he do? But they didn't go back. Just the one guy goes back. That's very important to know. Why not? Why wouldn't you? Would you go back to the guy who for free put you back together in perfect shape? Restored you like that? Wouldn't you like him? One. One went back. So that's the... uh, Jesus God is going around healing lepers and he raised Lazarus from the dead. And while he's doing that, or after he did it, during the time he did it, the Pharisees were now attempting to, once they found out that Lazarus was raised from the dead, what did the Pharisees want to do next? They wanted to re-kill Lazarus. That's their plan. 
Okay, Christ raised him. Our job is to go kill him. Okay? Consider the thought process of that for a moment. Place yourself into the story as an observer, a fly on the wall at the Pharisee committee meeting that is convened to orchestrate, to plan, to facilitate the murder of the now resurrected Lazarus. So imagine how many Pharisees you got. You probably got a hundred of them there at least. And they're the meeting. We're going to call the meeting to order. And on first order of business, or the first business item is we have to murder the resurrected Lazarus. So we got to get that done. That's our committee. That's their first concern. And obviously, now they've got to discuss it, right? You have to break off into groups and you have to plan. It's no different than a Sunday school committee. Okay, a little different. Well, maybe not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The condition of the church today. Um, and obviously, let's suppose that they succeed in, in uh, murdering Lazarus. What's the problem they have now? We've discussed it many times here. Now they have this problem. If they kill Lazarus, what do they do if Christ immediately re-resurrects him? How many times could this happen? We kill him, Christ brings him back. We kill him again, Christ brings him back. We've killed him seven times, Christ has brought him back seven times. We keep killing him. Could this go on a hundred times? Would Lazarus start volunteering? I mean, at what point does Lazarus think this is a joke? They have to think about that. Would, would Lazarus uh, come to them to be assassinated, knowing that Christ is going to resurrect him? Obviously, killing Lazarus has a downside. It's fraught with potential greater, more complex uh, issues than they could have originally thought. Christ could respond every time by resurrecting him. That would be a problem. All you would do now is increase Lazarus's testimony. I suspect the Pharisees began to anticipate this problem and other problems, and they had a debate. They had to debate it. How are we going to do this? It says clearly that they're going to kill him. The Bible is absolutely clear. So, they have to, and they're not stupid men, and they hate Christ, and Christ resurrected Lazarus. Are they happy for Lazarus being resurrected? No, they hate Lazarus. Why do they hate a man that's been resurrected? What motivates them to think like this? So my point is, is that the committee meeting, the debate, the plan, uh, they have to, like I said, they have to hold a vote. What does that mean? Think about it for a second. That would mean that uh, your part, if you're in that group, let's say you're just watching, you would watch a group with full knowledge after deliberating on all the potential responses and implications and consequences, trying to anticipate everything Christ would do and everything Lazarus would do and how they would respond. How could they successfully murder Lazarus? So they would have full knowledge. They would, the Pharisees did, with full knowledge, with willfulness, plot to kill Lazarus, a resurrected man. And they plotted to kill the only one who can resurrect the dead. Let's just take that into, the, give me the hypothesis, seed the premise here. We have somebody here, that would be God, we have somebody here that could raise the dead. Would we want to kill him? 
would seem ridiculous. What would we do with somebody that could raise the dead? We would go get the dead. We would want as many dead resurrected as we could. Not the Pharisees. They want to kill the ones that are resurrected and they want to kill the only one in existence who has the power to raise the dead. Why do they think like this? Why do they want to do it? And the answer is obviously obvious. That's a joke. Thank you for pretending to laugh. The Pharisees... Why would you kill the resurrection? Not golden goose. I didn't even begin to discuss the problem. Why would you kill the one? Why would you want to stop? See, there's your answer, right? The answer is obvious. The Pharisees don't want anybody resurrected. They don't want anyone resurrected. They want everybody to die. and Everyone to have hopelessness. And everyone, to have, this is fatalism. This is nihilism. What is nihilism? Do you know? It's the it's the denial of existence. If you're nihilistic, if you're a nihilist, then you deny existence. Who thinks like that? Do you know any nihilists? Answer: Yes, they're everywhere. They control the academic field in this country. That's who thinks like that. Look around, consider the condition of our universities and our public schools. They're saturated with monistic nihilism. Who else would want to re-kill the resurrected, by the way? Start thinking of that. Who else do you know that if someone were resurrected, the first response that they would have is, we've got to kill that guy or that lady. We've got to kill them. Who thinks like that in our culture today? You'll, be, you'll find them plentiful. But the Pharisees, going back, the Pharisees took this to another level. They were confronted with life himself. They saw life. He is life. Christ is life. And their response to life is to attempt to kill life. Now, they can't. Life can't be killed. But that's what they want to do. That's their aim. That's their motivation. That's their plan. So, so to that aim... That none would therefore believe and none would therefore receive life. You see, because that is the ultimate end here, right? If I'm attempting to kill life, then that makes it impossible for anyone to ever be resurrected. That makes it impossible for anyone to have life. That is their, their ultimate end. So that means that none live. And this is the reason that Christ issues them eternal condemnation in Matthew 23. But for today, note the irony of the Pharisees' thought process. They witness the resurrection of Lazarus. They see its impact on the multitude. They immediately conspire to murder Lazarus, John 12:10, in order to stop Lazarus from testifying of his death resurrection. That experience, they want to stop Lazarus from telling people that he was dead and now he is resurrected. They don't, and, and talking about all the elements and the details of it. They want to stop him from testifying of his existence. 
Because after he died, he still had existence. Physical death did not terminate his existence. And it's critical to the Pharisees that he not be allowed to say that to anybody. And he certainly can't be allowed to say how he was resurrected. Where is that going on today? Everywhere. But how do you stop Jesus Christ? That's a big problem for them. That's a great obstacle. If Christ continues to raise dead people, consider what he did with the lepers. What did he do with the lepers? He put their fingers back on, their hands back on, their feet, their toes, their ears, their eyes. He sent them back to have their cleansing ritual by the thousands. So what's what would the committee meeting of the Pharisees assume would happen once they saw Lazarus resurrected? What did they say when they got their first leper? They freaked out. And then what happened to them? They got another thousand of them. And then what? Thousands more. He sent every leper he could. Any leper that was in his path went back, healed, cleansed. Needing that ritual, right? Leviticus 14. If Christ is doing that to lepers, and they say, if he continues, the Pharisees said, if he continues to raise dead people, and he replaces missing limbs and eyes and ears, the whole world will go after him. John 12:19. And they must have seen the obvious. Christ will start doing what? First he healed lepers. That was impossible enough. Now he has resurrected somebody. What's he going to do next? If you're in the Pharisee committee on how to stop Christ, what do we have to prepare for? Well, he's going to raise from the dead thousands and thousands. He will flood Jerusalem with a multitude of resurrected dead people and healed lepers. Now what do we do? Who can overcome somebody who can resurrect his own army? How do you fight a guy that can make his own army at will? Basic elementary thinking can recognize that the ability to overcome physical death is a most formidable asset for a military commander, to say the least. Imagine, say, throw out a number here. I happen to have 144,000 unkillable witnesses. What would be the strategy of the Antichrist to shut them up? How do I stop 144,000 unkillable witnesses from getting their message out? I can't kill them. I can't shut them up. How do I stop them? If I can't kill the messengers, what do I have to do? I have to kill the audience. That's what I have to do. The Pharisees figured that out. If he sends us thousands of people, we can't let them ever be, we can't let anybody hear them. The Antichrist has to kill the audience, which is exactly what he does. I submit that the Pharisees expected mass resurrections from Christ to accompany the mass healings of lepers. The obvious question, why didn't Christ do it? Eventually he does do it, right? 
We should read that. Let's go to Matthew 27. Because he does. Twenty-seven fifty-one. Then, and there's that word, something amazing is going to happen. Try to get in the habit when you read the Bible and you see that word to scream it out at the top of your lungs so that you know. Then, behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked. And the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Let me repeat that. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and they went in the holy city and appeared to many after his resurrection. So notice that after his resurrection. Christ is the first, first fruits of the resurrection and then come the many. So what's the obvious mathematical question now? How many is many? And the many went into Jerusalem and appeared to many. I've got to know how many minis there are. Obviously, a Jewish cemetery is suddenly opened and a mass of people are resurrected. How many? I think lots. Thousands. Ten thousand. And they march into Jerusalem. I don't think it's four people. It wasn't four lepers. It's a multitude. And consider the Pharisees now. They're confronting exactly what their committee meeting had told them. Here comes a bunch of resurrected Jews. Their nightmare, the Pharisees' nightmare has come. Christ has resurrected his army. And it becomes obvious, doesn't it, that he will resurrect himself. Everyone asks, why did they kill the disciples? They killed the disciples to stop a bunch of things from happening. The Romans did and the Pharisees did. But uh, uh, you have to kill the people you can kill. And you can't kill Christ. So they certainly understood that he would resurrect himself. It, it, it's not possible to stop him. Nothing constrains him. He is not subject to the laws because he is the one who made the laws. He's the creator of all laws. The Pharisees surely expected this resurrected army to do something, didn't they? If you're in the Pharisee group and all of a sudden, let's just give it a number, 10,000 resurrected Jews are marching into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a large city. That's a large cemetery. There are millions there. At least two million. Maybe not that quite that many, but there are there are hundreds of thousands at minimum. So here they come. And what do you expect if you're the Pharisees? Here comes an army of resurrected people. And and what do they look like, by the way? Don't think of the zombie movies, whatever you do. They don't look like that. God is not going to raise a zombie. He's really good at what he does. How potent are these people coming in? What do they look like? 
And they're coming in by the thousands and they're talking to everybody. What did the Pharisees think they're going to do? They think they're going to attack. They have to think that. And who are they going to attack? Well, they heard Matthew 23. They know they're the target, right? They're the ones trying to kill all the resurrected. They're the ones trying to kill the resurrector. Surely the resurrector resurrected these people to come and kill the Pharisees, right? But they don't. And I always ask this question about this particular passage. They come in and they testify and they witness. Why do they do that? How long does this go on? I imagine the Pharisees sitting bunkered down while there's thousands of resurrected saints wandering around the city of Jerusalem talking to everyone they can. There's the Pharisees hunkered down. How long does this go on? How do the Pharisees function during this? Place yourself into the situation again. Thousands of graves are open. Believers in Christ come into your city. Come into Anchorage. Let's say the cemetery. All of a sudden the people come out that are saved. And there's thousands of them. And they're all over the city. Resurrected dead. What do they look like? Who are they? What do they say? How is it that the entire city of Jerusalem is not overcome? You would think, wouldn't you, that if thousands of people that we know come into the city and begin to testify of the resurrection, you would think, what? Is that the best? Can you do better visitation than that on Wednesday night? You can't do any better than that. How many people would you think would be saved by a testimony of people who were resurrected from the dead supernaturally? How many people would believe them? You would think everyone would believe them. They're coming to you with a story of resurrected life. Wouldn't you want to know? I'm telling you, no one cared. I get a kick out of the Signs and Wonders movement. There's a movement called the Signs and Wonders. This is a sign. This is a wonder. Shaking your head and having gold flecks fall out on a That's not a sign and that's not a wonder. That's a trick. That's not even a good trick. Uh, Saying that your fillings turned to gold isn't a sign and wonder. That's just more tricks. Sorry if I've offended you. (laughs) I, of course, am not sorry at all that I offended you. I'm trying to offend you. My whole purpose is to offend you if you think that's a sign and a wonder. This is a sign and a wonder. Why wasn't the entire city of Jerusalem overcome and converted by that? It was not. How is it that there's anyone in Jerusalem who does not believe in the person of Christ? Who could resist this evidence? Well, obviously, most And the Pharisees eventually realized that Christ did not intend to kill them. Even though they were relentlessly attempting to kill him. And in fact, they relentlessly attempted and did kill his disciples. But they had to realize after the resurrection in Matthew 27, 52, that all believers in Christ would be resurrected to eternal life. Eternal life existence. Yet, did that change them? Most, most Pharisees remained steadfast on their path to eternal death. 
They knew that was true. They knew this was false. They still chose false over true. Why? What's their motivation? By the way, not all. John 12.42. John 12.42 says that quite a few went okay. That's true. This is false. I'm choosing true. But they kept quiet about it. The majority chose false knowingly, with full knowledge, with willfulness, with a complete understanding. They still chose death. The Pharisees, you see, they have a plan. And scores of resurrection dead is not going to sway them. They don't care. They will not and they did not abandon their strategy of death. No evidence will deter them. No sign, no miracle, no wonder will matter. The truth does not matter to the Pharisees. They know the truth. doesn't matter. Demons know the truth. doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter? Back we are to the motive of the Antichrist, the lie of Satan. Okay? Now, take all of that stuff, that discussion on the motivation, the hatred for the ones that are the signs, the hatred for the ones that are the evidences of God and Christ and the salvation plan and His goodness and His mercy. They still hate it. Couple that now back to Lazarus and the sign of the donkey foal. Remember the donkey foal and Lazarus? I said a while back that there is some correlation between the resurrection of Lazarus and the riding of the donkey foal. Those two, those two are together. He didn't raise Lazarus and then say, well, now that I've done that, I will go and ride a donkey full. He isn't making it up as he goes. He's omniscient God. There is a relationship between these two. He's telling you something. They fit together. Both are ultimately salvation from death, are they not? Can you see that? Because here I have the lamb, the lamb of the, the blood of the lamb. Redeeming the donkey foal who should die of a broken neck. Exodus 13.13 But he's not dead. He's not dead, that lamb, because the lamb of God himself, the blood of Christ, is over the donkey foal. And somehow Lazarus is resurrected from the dead and the donkey is still alive. And you see the salvation element, the resurrection element in both of them. That's ultimately what they are. So they're back to back. More on Lazarus and the donkey foal in the coming weeks. Now, let's conclude all of this today. How am I doing? I'm doing good with the transfiguration. That's the piece that has to come next and see if we can deal with this pillar of cloud that is going to get us to the pillar of salt, which is going to get us to Lazarus's, I'm sorry, get us to Lot's wife. Now, as you know, here comes the transfiguration. Let me read this 17.1. Of Matthew. Now, after six days, I'm going to make a list for you so you can start looking at it. So let's get rid of my donkey foal and Lazarus, which is clearly a resurrection issue, and then we'll start making a list. We start out with six days. After six days, immediately you start saying to yourself, 
Am I, in, am I in Second Peter again where I have to know just one thing? A day is a thousand years. Is he trying to tell me after 6,000 years? Is that what he's saying? Know one thing. At least I know that one thing. Now, after six days, Jesus took Simon Peter. Now, I added Simon. Took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So, I only got the three of them in Christ so far. How many are there? Four. And he was transfigured before them. What does transfigured mean again? Well, Delphus. And, and his face shone like the sun. So he's, how bright is the sun? And he's standing right there. So how you doing? And his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, behold, something big is going to happen. Something amazing is going to happen. An incredible truth. Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. What's the obvious question? What do they talk about? Well, hi, Christ, how you doing? No. They said something to each other. Who said what to who? Then Peter, being out of it, I throw that in, that's my commentary. Answered. What do you mean answered? Did somebody ask Peter a question? What do you think? Then Peter answered and said to to Jesus. Obviously somebody asked Peter a question. So what was the question? Who asked him? Lord, it is good for us to be here. So is the question, Peter, is it good for you to be here? Yes, it's good for us to be here. Is that the question? Probably not. It is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. How big is a tabernacle? Is Peter going to make it himself? We're going to make three. Why would we make three tabernacles? Why would Elijah and Moses get one? Who gets the biggest one? Are they all the same size? Is this doctrinally sound? No. While he was still speaking, behold, here we go again. Something unbelievable is going to happen. A bright cloud overshadowed them. This is the pillar of cloud. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in him in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces. What did they look like when they fell on their faces? They fell on their faces. They fell forward, didn't they? What did they look like? They, they laid out. Is that the same thing as Gethsemane? Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and they arose. Oh, let me repeat what it really says. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus only. How interesting. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Resurrection. Till I'm resurrected. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? What does that have to do with him being resurrected? 
Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Okay, so here's your list. Six days. After six days, shining light. Uh, uh, I have light. I have this sun brightness. I have uh, pure white light. Okay, so tremendous amount of light there and brightness and white. Moses is there. Why Moses? Elijah is there. Why Elijah? Why not Enoch, as some would suspect? Where's Aaron? Uh, how about uh, Josiah? Uh, how about King David? I have uh, Peter and what I call the, the threes of Peter. Simon Peter, Simeon Peter. We know that Simeon Peter is part of the Simeon process. And I have the threes of Simeon Peter. I have uh, the three tabernacles, the three rooster denials, and the three questions of John. Where do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he gets all three. He gets it wrong twice and finally gets it correct on the third time. Then I have the pillar of cloud. Six days. Let me put it in here. I have Peter, James, and John. And then I have the pillar of cloud. So let's just stop right there because I'm going to run out of time. But let's take a look at what we've got. Double check to see if I even have time. I almost don't. Let me move along. We know that Moses, if, if I said to you Moses and Elijah and Peter, Simon Peter and James... And John. Now that's not an accident that those are five in total and there are significance to each one of them. Moses is normally assigned to the law, right? Elijah is normally assigned to the prophets. What do the law and the prophets testify of? Let's put it better. Who does the law and the prophets testify of? Peter is clearly, because of the three, because of everything he says and does, including coming out of the water, out of the boat, he is an incredible picture of the nation of Israel. These two guys, James and John, are the what? They are the sons of thunder. What's thunder? When I tell you the thunderings, when I tell you thunder, what is it? Thunder is always the same thing in the Bible. It is the voice of God. And it's languages. As you know, the, there was languages all over Mount Sinai. There was languages at Shavuot, Pentecost, and Acts. You have the relationship between Sinai and Pentecost. Okay, uh, James, John, and Peter are called in Galatians uh, two nine. Make sure it's not three nine two nine. They are called what? Pillars. They are the three pillars. And the pillar of cloud shows up 
and overshadows the three pillars. Next week, we'll figure all of that out.